On Sunday mornings, we alternate between the books of John and Isaiah. Last week we were in Isaiah. This week we are in the book of John. And we are following through each of those progressively, leaving no verse unturned. And we find ourselves in John chapter 3, verse 22, and we'll go through verse 36 this morning. So, let's read that portion and see what it has to say. This is John chapter 3, reading verses 22 through 36. And it says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them, and he was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. And John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness that to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Let's begin by looking at the first couple of verses here as we lay the groundwork for the text. It says in verse 22, After this, after what? After Jesus came to Jerusalem for the Passover and he overturned the tables and cleansed the temple, and then he had his conversation with Nicodemus after that whole situation. So it says, after this, after all of that, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. He remained there with them, and he was baptizing. The Judean countryside, we don't know what that is, but I've got a little map for you here. You have maps in the back of your Bible, many of you, and you can turn and look to those. But here's, here's a map of the Judean countryside in yellow. And that's the place where Jesus and his disciples were, the place above to the north, Anon, that is where John went to baptize. So there's between 40, 60 mile difference there. So you can see where the two groups of people were located. Okay. And it says, what were they doing there? They were baptizing. Now it says that Jesus was baptizing, but if you, if you scroll ahead with your eyes and you look down at chapter 4, verse 2, you notice that it wasn't actually Jesus himself who was baptizing, but it says, uh, but Jesus himself did not baptize anyone, but his disciples were the ones actually baptizing. So when it says Jesus was baptizing, uh, what it really means is that Jesus had the authority and he was the one who was the initiator of the baptism, but Jesus himself was not baptizing people, okay? His disciples were baptizing people, and John makes that very clear to us, okay? And it says, John was also baptizing now, there was a, an overlap here of four to six months where Jesus and John both had a ministry of baptism happening. Four to six months. And then it came to an end. And we, we see that come to a close here. This is a, a transition period in the New Testament where one great man 
who the scriptures call a great man. Of course, no one is truly great, but God himself. But it says, above all the prophets, everybody who's come before him, listen, John is at the top. Okay, so consider him that. But it says, even John, his time will come to an end. And we, we see that happen here in this text this morning. But it says water was plentiful there. And that's why he was there. In fact, Anon actually means double spring. Uh, there were lots of springs of water there, and this is where they were baptizing. So it's really important that as we continue on and we start to get some context here, that the baptism being administered both by Jesus and his disciples and John was a water baptism. There is a water baptism happening here. We might confuse it with something else here that we're going to look at soon, but it was a water baptism. Now, it says John had not yet been put in prison. So the event we're reading today happens between the temptation of Jesus, which we find in the Synoptic Gospels, and the imprisonment of John. This is where this is taking place, all right? We remember that John is not one of the Synoptic Gospels in that it has different information, not competing information, right? Not contradictory information, but different information than the Synoptic Gospels. Now, a lot of it's the same, but there's, there are differences, certainly. Okay, so look at verse 25. It says, now... A discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. They came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing. Now it says a discussion arose. And we're going to spend a little bit of time here because this is the problem. The problem that needs to be resolved within the text here. All right, there's a problem. There's a resolution. Here's the problem. The problem is there are questions by John's disciples about purification. Why do they have questions about purification? There were two types of purification that took place by means of water for the Jews. Two types. The first type of purification by water was a ritual purification. And we read lots about that in our Old Testament. I have just an example here for you. This is out of Numbers 19, verses 11 through 13. This is an example text. It says, whoever touches the dead body of any person shall be unclean seven days, but he will cleanse himself with water on the third day and on the seventh day and so be clean. If he does not cleanse himself on the third day and on the seventh day, he will not be clean. Whoever touches a dead person, the body of anyone who has died and does not cleanse himself, defiles the tabernacle of the Lord, that person shall be cut off from Israel. A very significant threat there, right? If you don't cleanse yourself with water according to this ritual, you'll cut off from your people. So it was important. It says, because the water for impurity was not thrown on him, he will be unclean, and his uncleanness is still on him. Water. Water purification. How did they do that? Well, over time, they needed uh, places where this would happen, and it, it turned into something called a mikvah, which really means a collection of water is, is what it means. But here's what one looks like. This is a mikvah. This is uh, somewhere around the first century, this, these ruins here. And uh, you see there's little steps, and it goes down. You can imagine it's filled with water, right? It kind of looks like a, uh, uh, I don't know, like a, like a Baptist, uh, a little baptistry, right? It's really similar. Uh, but you would take steps down into it, and, and you would uh, cleanse yourself. You'd walk back out. Look at this next picture. Uh, this kind of gives you some more insight because you would enter into one door, go down into the water, come out of the, come out of the water, and exit through the other door. One door is to enter dirty. The other is to exit clean. So pretty, pretty interesting situation, right? So how often would they do this? Um, well, 
There are different circumstances that require it should something happen to you, but just in general, uh, during the New Testament period, it was common that they would cleanse themselves in water nearly every day, certainly every time before they entered the synagogue. They would cleanse themselves in water. Uh, the Qumran society, community, uh, they would do it twice a day, okay, because they were, I don't know, that's what they like to do. Jeremiah 17, 13, um, it says, O Lord, the hope. Now, that word hope right there, <clears throat> significant, that word hope right there is actually the word mikvah, which is the same as this little pool. O Lord, the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Okay, so the Lord is called the hope, which is actually that word mikvah. So the Lord is the one who cleanses, right? And this is the text that the Jewish people would use. Yes, the Lord is the one who cleanses, but by means of water. So the Lord has instituted such that we would be cleansed by water, and the Lord is actually the one doing the purifying. So um, this is what was happening. There was living water. There was constantly a spring of water that would come up so that it wasn't stagnant water ever, but there was, uh, these mikvahs would always be in a place where there was a spring of water. So Anon then is a pretty good place to be baptizing people, right? Because this idea of baptizing is pulled from the Jewish rite of ritual purification. Okay, but there was a second type of, of, of purification that was happening by water, and it was proselyte purification. That is, someone who once was not a, a part of Israel or a Jewish person, but would be converting to Judaism, uh, would have to be cleansed. And the way they would do that was by water. Okay, so uh, upon someone's conversion from the outside world into Israel, they would, in a sense, be baptized. They would be washed in water. And they would, by the way, both of these types were self-administered. You yourself would go by yourself down into the water, get down in the water. By the way, each mikvah had to have at least enough water to cover the entire body of an average size person. So full immersion is what's actually being practiced here. So the people would walk down in it, complete immersion in the water, they'd walk back up clean. And this would happen in ritual purifications. This would happen in proselyte purification when someone was converted. Um, they would walk down, purify themselves through the water, and come out on the other side. Now, when they were, this is significant, by the way, if you're wondering why I'm going into all these details, because it matters to the context. Um, this practice of converting and being cleansed by water how much more of a parallel could we possibly see to Christian baptism? In fact, the baptism practiced by John was not so weird as it is to us. <laughs> because in what other circumstance do you say, oh great, you want to join the church? Fantastic, here's a pool of water. Uh, dunk yourself in it. Actually, someone's going to come in the water with you and they're going to like actually help dunk you under the water. But then after you do that in front of everyone... Um, you know, then you can be part of this thing called Christianity of the body of the church. Uh, that's a pretty weird situation, let's just admit it. Um, there's nothing else in this world where you go through something like that unless you're part of a cult. Right? But for them, it was not weird. It was, that is what, that is a religious right and practice. And so it makes sense. But here's the thing that made John's baptism different is that all of a sudden, it wasn't national. 
It wasn't, this is the right given to national ethnic Israel. This is the right that we're giving to you. But here's what it, here's what it symbolizes. Do you remember what John was preaching? Repent. Repent. It was personal. Had to do with the person and their sin. And it didn't have to do with the washing away of dirt from the body, but it had to do with washing away the guilt from the heart. But John's baptism couldn't do it. John's baptism was different than Jesus' baptism. I actually want to show you an example of that. You might say, well, if someone was baptized by John, remember there's an overlap here. So let's just say you come across John the Baptist. Jesus is already part of his, his ministry. He's, he's baptizing down in the south. And you say, yeah, I've heard of, I've heard of uh, Jesus and everything. Um, and John says, well, repent and, and be baptized. And so someone goes over to John and they're baptized with John and his disciples. And then, and then you meet up with some other Christians, let's say a year later, and you were baptized under John's baptism. And they come up to you and they say, tell me about your baptism. What happened there? Well, we have that exact situation in Acts 19. Let me just read for you what it says. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Apollos was a very bright guy, remember that. Apollos was at Corinth. Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. Paul and this guy Apollos. And he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, uh, No, no. We've not heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Uh, that's a big problem. He said, okay, into what were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Seems right. I mean, okay. So verse 4, Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe that there is one to come after him, Jesus. And upon hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. What just happened right there? Believe it or not, they were rebaptized. It actually happens in the scriptures. Now, why do I say that? Because rebaptism is a very common practice in the South. I say in the South because I've lived not in the South. It is far more common to find that happening in the South. That young kids who go to church are baptized when they have no idea what's going on. Later on in life, they come to actual faith in Christ. They say, what do I do? What do I do with my baptism? We're going to talk a little bit more about that. The baptism of John served a purpose for a time, but when it, Jesus came on the scene, his ministry was no longer necessary. So John's disciples, they didn't really understand that idea. They've been with John this whole time. Remember Matthew eleven thirteen and 14, for until the prophets and the law, uh, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. All the prophets in the law prophesied until John. John is a turning point in God's redemptive plan. John the Baptist is a hinge. So something stops necessarily with John the Baptist and begins with Christ. Something is happening here. We're witnessing it here in our text. Something different has happened. But what's happened? What's different? A question I want to ask you that maybe I hope you're, you're asking is, was baptism an exclusive first century rite that served the purpose of bridging this gap between Judaism and Christianity? 
I'm going to ask that question again. Was baptism an exclusive first century rite? That is, it belonged to the first century because it made sense to them. But maybe it doesn't make sense to us now. Could it be that it only served as a purpose for bridging that gap between Judaism and Christianity? I think obviously you, you know the answer I'm going to give to that is no. But it should be a question we have. Because that is what's happening here. There's a transition period. Does water baptism still matter? Or was it only an historically associated event, such as wearing head coverings, of which none of you are doing today? Has water baptism lost its significance? Should this practice still exist? Well, you say, well, yeah. Why? Well, I'm going to read what Matt actually read for us earlier. This is Matthew 28, 18 through 20. It says, Jesus came and he said to all of them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So how long does Jesus anticipate this disciple-making process to happen? To the end of the age. The end of the age, that is consummation of this time. That is when Jesus Christ will return. So until Jesus Christ returns, what ought we to be doing? That is making disciples and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What is he not commanding us to do? He's not commanding us to baptize people with the Holy Spirit. That's not our job. That's not something we can do. God is the one who does that. What about this baptism of the Holy Spirit? Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In him also, when you... Listen to this. This is a good one to turn to if you've got your Bible handy, by the way. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In him you also... Listen to the wording here. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we required possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Now, when did that happen? There's an equation happening here. You hear the word. You either accept it or reject it. Should you accept it and believe on Christ genuinely, then the Holy Spirit comes upon you and seals you. Upon your hearing the word in faith, the Holy Spirit seals you. For how long? Well, until we acquire possession of our inheritance to the praise of his glory. Acts 10:48. While Peter was still saying these things, listen to this. The Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. Fell on who? All who heard the word. And there were believers among them, some circumcised and Peter, they were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out, listen to that wording. Poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues extolling God. Peter declared, listen to this. Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Commanded them. These people were already believers. The Holy Spirit had already come upon them. And he said, now I command you, be baptized. Why? Because Jesus sent us to make disciples, and part of that is water baptism. These questions and concerns over purification 
by John's disciples are, I think, legitimate. This was a time of transition, and it was very confusing. It's confusing right now. How did that work? How did that transition work? He is baptizing, and all are going to him. Now we're back in John chapter 3. John chapter 3. They came to John, and they're complaining. Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan. Now, they're talking about now Jesus' baptism. Jesus came, and he was baptized by John. To whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing now. And all are going to him. What are they saying? They're complaining that now they're not the popular group anymore. All of a sudden, Jesus and his group is getting all the popularity. And they're not happy about it. All right? They raise up as a little group. And hey, yeah, we're real popular for a time. Everybody's coming to us. But now Jesus comes on the scene and he's stealing John's thunder. And they're mad about it because they're not necessarily part of Jesus' group, even though they are, but they're not. And they're upset that their, their time is diminishing. and It's going away. John, if we're going to work here as a group, we need to do something to bump up our popularity here. Something is wrong. You need to go talk to that Jesus and tell him that what he's doing isn't right. Okay, so then we get John's response which obviously a response from that is absolutely necessary. Here's what John says in verse 27. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom. Let me read that just in a second. Let's look at verses 27 28. He says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I was sent before him. A person cannot even receive one thing. Is he talking about Jesus or himself? He's talking about the ministry that John received and then the ministry that Jesus received. We have both received ministries, but the ministries that we've received, we've received from above, and only God gives those ministries. Therefore, who are we to say when a ministry begins and a ministry ends, but it is all in the hands of the one who comes from above? That's what he's saying. No one can receive even one thing unless it comes from above, so therefore, who are we to say when it goes? We are recipients of ministry from above. So John received his ministry from the Lord. His job in this ministry was to prepare the way of the Lord. Do you remember what was said about him uh, when when when? when his parents were told that they were going to have a son and, and they were talking about what John would accomplish, what he would do, who he would be. It says in Luke 1, 16 and 17, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers and the children the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Again in Matthew 3, it says that he's the voice of the one in the wilderness crying, prepare the way of the Lord. John's ministry was one of preparation. It was one that when the things that he's telling the people to prepare for came, then he no longer is needed to say, prepare the way of the Lord. The Lord is coming. The kingdom is at hand. Well, the kingdom's not at hand anymore. Actually, the kingdom of the Lord is among you. It's, it's actually already here, so that message doesn't really make sense anymore. So what you're doing doesn't make sense anymore. And John is coming to the reality, and that's why there's such a small overlap in their times of ministry, is that Jesus has come. My job was to prepare the way for him. He's here now, so who am I? I am not the Christ. 
Can't you see that? This is not my job. I'm not supposed to be the one who's elevated. He is the one who is elevated. So all are going to him? Great. That's the way it should be. In fact, let's shut this whole thing down. We, let's, let, let's point everybody to him. He is the one that's important. I am not the Christ. And that's why he says, he must increase, but I must decrease. Now, before he says that, though, he goes into this language about the bridegroom. He says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is not complete. I don't know about you, but on an initial reading of that, I think, okay, that's a great little uh, something there about bridegrooms and things. And I just kind of move on to the meat of he must increase and I must decrease. And I kind of bypass that little part because it doesn't really make sense. But it, it really does, when you look at the friend of the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom is who we would compare to uh, the best man. And what's really interesting is that the best man um, at this time, who was called the friend of the bridegroom, he was the servant of the bridegroom, that is the groom. He was the servant of the groom. One of his primary jobs was when it was time for the ceremony to take place, he was the one to go get the bride and bring her to the groom. Do you see what his job is? He says, so that's what I did. That was my job. My job was to go grab the bride, take her to the groom, and then now they're married. Hey, my joy is complete. My job is done. He said, this is exactly how it worked for me. My job was not to be the groom. My job was to prepare the bride to bring to the groom. And now that I've done that, and now that he's here, my job is done. And I have great joy in that. So John and Jesus are not in competition. Let's say this on a practical level. The tendency in Christian ministry is to have the desire to rise in the public eye. That's the tendency in Christian ministry, is to have a rise in the public eye. Just do a simple Google search for churches and you will find that to be the case. What can we do to gain popularity? What can we do when one church is more popular than we are? How can we elevate ourselves and our name? Not only whole ministries, but the ministry leaders want to be elevated above other ministry leaders. I'm greater than you. I'm better than you at this. I look better than you. Look at my giant face on this billboard kind of thing. I, I, raise, I, I raise myself up in popularity. I build myself into acclaim. We do not want to make a church name the focus of the gospel message because that's ridiculous. We do not want to make a person's name the focus of ministry. Absurd. What we want in ministry is to elevate the name of Christ. But in order to do that, we have to take a back seat. In order to do that, we don't need to be concerned with popularity. We don't need to be concerned with how we look in the public eye. But instead, we have to say that in order for Christ to increase, I have to realize that I myself have to decrease. And this is exactly a parallel situation that's happening. It was ministries competing. The ministry of Christ 
and the, was elevated, and the disciples said, yeah, but we want to continue on. We like that everybody's coming to us, and now everybody's going to them. He says, we have to back away because Christ is the focus. Important in our personal lives, in order for Christ to increase in us at all, our old self has to decrease. If Christ is to be up front, we have to be in the back, and that's the case. John 3, 31 through 36, this is the last section of the text, and it says, now before we read this, there's some debate here about this text because it is either, one, a continuation of John the Baptist speaking to his disciples, or option two, it's an explanatory note written by John the Apostle, to explain what just happened. I tend to think it's an explanatory note written by John the Apostle rather than quoting from John the Baptist, just as he did with John 3, 16 through 21, explaining the conversation that he had just had with Nicodemus. So if we read this, I, I tend to see that it's, uh, it doesn't really change the meaning here, but it changes the way that we understand what's happening as we read. But if we view verses 31 through 36 as John the Apostle saying, now, let me tell you why I told you that. Then we read it a little differently. Verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. Now, pause right there for a second. Verse 31 seems to be contrasting the ministry of John the Baptist and the ministry of Jesus. Right? So he says, let's back away from that story now. And let's look at these two guys. He who comes from above, Jesus, is above all including the ministry of John the Baptist. But he who is of the earth belongs to the earth. He speaks in an earthly way, John the Baptist. He who comes from heaven is above all. There's that phrase repeated. So it's important to say, because at this time, there were many who still continued to kind of be worshipers, almost in a sense, of John the Baptist. And he was trying to get people to back away from that and realize John the Baptist is not all there is, but the focus is on Christ. So Jesus, the one who comes from heaven, he is above all. He bears witness, verse 32, to what he has seen and heard, and yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony, now that, that doesn't seem to make sense, does it? It says no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony, well, it seems to be no one, but we understand what he means, right? No one naturally receives the testimony, but only those who are enabled by the Spirit of God. So, he says, for, the, for uh, whoever receives the testimony has set his seal to this. That is, above all things, this is what he stands on. God is true. For he whom God sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Now, John the Baptist had, had been given the Spirit of God, right? He was actually filled with the Holy Spirit even from the womb. And he ministered in the power and the spirit of God. Yes. But Jesus had the spirit of God in him without measure. Because he was, in fact, God after all. John the Baptist was not. The father loves the son and has given all, there's that phrase, all things again. He has given all things into his hand. In verse 36, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now, let's talk about this uh, 
phrasing here. This is where we'll end today. Whoever believes is not condemned, but whoever does not obey will be condemned. Why doesn't it say, but whoever does not believe? If we go back to John 3.15, it says, whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Okay? Belief is necessary. John 3.18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So we already have it in this chapter that John has said, if you don't believe in Jesus, you will be condemned. But if you do believe in Jesus, you will not be condemned. He's already said it in this chapter. Okay? So it's not as though it's not true. So we need to understand that when we read a verse like this, rather than trying to be legalistic with the things that we need to do, the things that we have to do, the things that we can't do, because if we don't obey the Son, then I'm going to be condemned. What kind of obedience is being asked for here? I think we can find the answer. Paul helps us with this, Romans 16, verses 25 through 27. I'm going to read that for you. We're asking what kind of obedience is being looked for here. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel, the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings and has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God, for what reason? To bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. What kind of obedience is necessary here? The obedience of faith. The obedience of faith. What do we do with all this information, of which I gave you quite a bit this morning? What do we do with all this information? What, what are we to walk away with this morning? Well, you're to, number one, walk away with the information. You are to walk away understanding the Word of God. Because this is how we come to know Him. That is primary. Knowing God and His Word is primary, not practical steps on how to enhance your life, by the way, I'm just saying. But what kind of implications can be given by understanding the theology of the text? Number one, we understand that Christian baptism, yes, is a rite that was administered in the first century, and it made sense to the first century to practice this. It made more sense for them, practically speaking, because it was already being practiced but it is a right that continues on to this day from the command of Jesus himself. But by the way, it should be said, anything we read in our scriptures comes from Jesus himself, just saying. If we have the words from Jesus himself saying, go, make disciples and baptize them, who are we to look back and say, yeah, we'll make disciples, but water baptism isn't necessarily part of that deal. But it is. It is. Okay, so we continue to, that's why we call it one of the ordinances of the church. Another thing he said to continue to do until he returns is to partake of the Lord's Supper. Those, that's why we have two ordinances in the church. Things that we participate in and practice, not because they make us holy, but it's because it's what our Lord commanded us to do. And you know what? He has a purpose in it. I, wanna, I have a book sitting here because it's one I want to recommend to you. If this issue of baptism, which we've talked about before but isn't very clear, there's a book here written by Tom Schreiner um, called Believer's Baptism. I highly recommend this book for you to read. 
Now, I will tell you that it is 365 pages long, um, but every page is worth it, okay? Believer's Baptism, written by Tom Schreiner, um, a, an incredible book. I, I went back and reviewed some of it for, this, for, uh, for, the, for the sermon this morning, but um, what is the idea is that what precedes baptism, hearing the word and having faith in the word is what precedes baptism. And then comes obedience to the Christian life. Why? Because this is how God had planned it. You hear the word, you believe it in faith, you are baptized. You participate in the Lord's Supper regularly underneath the authority of the church and the encouragement of the believers around you and their um, uh, whoo I just had a moment there I, uh, uh, their accountability in your life there we go uh, I couldn't think of the word accountability the, the accountability of the people around you in your life all those things are found in the scriptures and are necessary they're part of how the local church operates Okay, so these things are important. So walk away, number one, knowing that Christian baptism is still a right that is practiced by us, not to earn God's favor, but to be obedient to the one who has earned God's favor for us. And we accept that by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And so uh, we continue that right today. We practice that as it should be. If you have questions about your baptism, I think everybody has a unique baptism story. At least that's been my experience. I have mine. I was baptized as a baby in the United Methodist Church. Uh, and then I, I kind of uh, had a different experience coming out of that. So I have my own story of how, how that happened to me. So if you have questions about your baptism, please, please, let's talk about that and, and, uh, and, and see what practical steps need to be taken. Why? So that you can be in favor with God better? You can't earn any more of God's favor. You have all of God's favor by faith in Christ. There is no more favor to get. But you can become more sanctified in your obedience to what Christ commanded. Absolutely. And that should be your desire. I want to do things the way our Lord had anticipated, had desired, had directed. And so that's that. Let's, let's talk about that if you have questions about your baptism. Um, and then, number two, I think the other primary thing we need to learn in this is about the authority of Christ over all things. Christ has authority over all. The one sent from heaven has authority. The one from earth uh, had a ministry for a time, but then all things were given over to the Son. Okay, so we focus our emphasis on Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Should it be that we in this church ever lose our focus and begin to elevate the name of a church? We begin to elevate uh, the name of a person? We begin to elevate something else other than the gospel of Jesus Christ? We are in deep trouble. Because the thing that should be magnified, the thing that should be lifted up, is the name of Jesus Christ, the message of the gospel. This is primary. This is what's important. Amen. Now, sometimes, in order to get that message proclaimed, we need to let people know who we are and what we're doing. We need to let people know that a body of believers exists in this place, which a lot of people don't know that we exist, by the way. Uh, but we need to let people know that we exist so that we can have fellowship with them in the community of the Word, lifting each other up, holding each other accountable, and doing the things the Lord has directed together. Uh, we do that. And then kind of a side note to that, how does that affect you personally? Well, it affects you personally in knowing 
if you want Christ to begin to be the focus of your life, then you have to stop being the focus of your life. What a We could go tell the kids that, and I think they would get that. But how often do we understand simple things and yet not live by them? Isn't that the case? If Jesus is to be the center and focus of your life, then you need to push yourself out of the way. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit whom you have sent us. Thank you, God, that every time we open your word, uh, we find a wealth of joy and contentment and understanding, but also conviction. God, I pray that the words that we have read today, I pray that the message that we have focused our attention on would be beneficial in the sense that we would continue to push away ourself, our focus on us, and let our attention and our focus be on Christ. I pray that you would continue to help us see what it is that, that you've commanded us to be as the church. What is our part in the church, the ordinances that you have set up, the way you have directed things in the church. God, that we would follow that faithfully. Again, not to earn your favor, something we can never do because you are a gracious God. And in order for there to truly be grace, then it can't be earned. So we rely on your grace. And in your grace, God, we do these things. We participate in these things that you have set up for us. And they are sanctifying to us. That as we eat the Lord's Supper together, we reflect, we remember, we look forward to Christ and all that he has done. It's a time to reflect on our sins, to celebrate the grace that has been given to us in Jesus Christ. As we see baptism happening, we remember the power of your spirit working in salvation, your promise that faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That promise still stands. I pray that you would help us to be obedient to all your commands. Guide us by your spirit and in your word, God, for your glory. I pray now that as we sing one last song together today, that our focus and our attention would be on you, that you would receive the glory of our hearts and of our minds today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.